The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hello and welcome to the Big Technology Podcast, show for cool-headed nuanced conversation of the tech world and beyond. And this is about as special of an episode <laughs> as we've had to date because we are recording live at Unfinished Live with our very special guest, a good friend of mine, a longtime colleague, and now a fellow media entrepreneur, Charlie Warzel. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, so you tweeted that showing up to a live event caused you to be like somewhat excited and also <laughs> a little apprehensive. Talk about the emotions that are uh, oh, experiencing right so now. So many emotions. Uh, I'm trying to figure out like my mask etiquette, right? Because I feel like there's, it's just, this is crazy kind of negotiation, right? Um, yeah. No, I mean, this is, this is, it's, I feel like we're hitting a sweet spot right here where, you know, you had to sort of plan an event like this in, you know, times where you know pre-delta all that stuff and and get people to you know want to come and be here and then we're we have a book coming out in december and you know the plan is for that uh me and my partner uh, and helen peterson and uh the book tour is you know slated to be virtual so i think we're in this like kind of great little sweet spot where we can all see each other feel good about it and you know we might have to retreat to our corners for winter so i want to get into so many things but uh, let's start a little bit with your biography because I'm kind of fascinated by your career trajectory. I don't know if everybody here, the masses that are on hand know about it, but it is worth going through again because, you know, we both started, uh, at the ad trades. You were at ad week. Yep. I was at ad age. Yep. Then you went to Buzzfeed on the tech desk Then I went to Buzzfeed on the tech desk. <laughs> then you got one of the most premier jobs in the media world, a job that a lot of people uh, would be extremely jealous of, <laughs> an opinion writer at the New York Times, mm-hmm. big audience, big platform, yeah. um, and you left yeah. to go to Substack. What happened, Charlie? Uh, it might have been <laughs> what happened. Uh, it might have been a bit of like COVID madness. Uh, you did during COVID? I, I, left, yeah. I left the Times in April um, to start a newsletter on Substack, and... <sighs> You know, essentially what ended up happening for me personally was I love the times. I love the people there. Uh, I, I love the platform and, and the work. And it's, I mean, genuinely a privilege to be in an organization like that. And, you know, at the same time, working at a place like BuzzFeed really kind of taught me how to be on or like how to want to be on the bleeding edge of like, you know, the net, the next thing, you know, like the, the weird ways the internet is changing us, warping, evolving culture, you know, shaking the foundations of democracy, whatever it is. Right. And the times I found myself in a moment sort of post Trump, um, that, you know, a lot of like really interesting stuff happening in like the, like the, the NFT craze was just kind of like, you know, in its, in its media, like bubble portion. And I was, I was, I felt like there was a new, like there was a next thing that was kind of happening. And I felt that 
being in a place like the times, it was really hard for me to do that work in the way that I wanted to do it. The work that oh, I was. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we go into that? I mean, yeah. we'll spend the whole day talking about the New York times, but yeah, uh, at least a few minutes at the beginning makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I mean, so how did it limit you? And then I also am curious, did you have a moment where you had to balance the influence that you might have at a publication with that amount of reach versus just being a newsletter guy? So, um, the way, the first part of the question, the way that it's limiting, again, like I had all this great freedom there, but you're always trying to do this thing where you're, ex- you know, you're explaining to a really broad general audience. And I was finding myself not really wanting or being that interested in those types of explanations right now. I was finding that a lot of the pieces that I was pitching were like, didn't, didn't have like a thesis statement, you know, like there was no, like, like I, I was trying to think out loud and, and, you know, develop my own opinions on things. I didn't have a lot of, you know, definitive, um, declarative ideas, you know? Um, and, and so, and, and I was just like, my work was getting longer and more sort of meandering. And it was just something that really fit like the newsletter you style. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. The I, newsletter industry. Yeah. And, and, and I, you know, I, what I find the work now that I'm doing is a lot more exploring these, these curiosities at length with this community that I've built of people who are similarly curious, who are constantly giving me feedback in this way. And it's, you know, I, I'm, I'm like reading more books and, you know, like reading like more papers and sort of, I sort of almost feel like I'm in school right now <laughs> yeah. in a way. And I feel like I kind of had to go back to that in order to, um, you know, sort of get grounded in whatever's going on. There's like a, a lot of stuff. I think crypto is, is a really interesting example of that. Like I don't, I'm skeptical of a lot of it. I don't, you know, necessarily know that I trust it, but I also don't want to miss, you know, important, smart things mm-hmm. in that space. And, and I don't want to be left behind. The reading books more often definitely resonates because when I le- I w- did the same thing as you did, I left Buzzfeed and I went uh, to go do newsletter life. And I definitely remember speaking to our former editor, John Paczkowski, and he's like, why do you want to do this? And I was like, well, I'd like to learn about monetary policy. What's <laughs> wrong with you? But it does give you a little bit more of that freedom, which is nice. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about your interests because I, I find it even more interesting, your intellectual journey than, um, than your career path. Uh, mm. You started out writing about the ad industry. Yeah. Um, we were both like writing about like the digital side of the 2012 election where it seemed like you know, people campaigning on Twitter was novel and a waste of time. And totally. people were live jiffing the Romney-Obama debate on Tumblr. Uh, and then you moved to BuzzFeed and were writing p- uh, pieces about the broader tech industry. But I think there was a moment maybe in 2015 or 2016 where you must have said to yourself, all this is bad because your pieces got a lot darker. <laughs> what what happened there? Yeah. Um well, uh, it's a, it's, an, it's a good it's a good question. I mean, I think that as I watched this, so the, the cool thing about the job at at BuzzFeed was what they were trying to do there in the you know 2012 2013 when I joined was trying to really you know get away from at that point which had been like the main type of you know tech reporting which had been like gadgets and stuff like that and 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 kind of a bit like you know, celebratory of the tech industry. And the way that, that uh, John Herman, Matt Buchanan, and, and Ben Smith kind of vi- like visualized this coverage. Team. That was the yeah. original tech team. Uh, and Ben is the editor. 
was was this idea of like you know technology is just culture cover it as culture try to you know figure out what's going on and and i think you know looking at that lens you know in at a time like 2013 2014 it gave me this ability to sort of see some of these bigger platforms in a different way right like i you know the big one was the the first piece that i remember writing about like facebook that in 2013 that like stuck was trying to figure out um why Facebook doesn't show you how many people saw your post mm-hmm. and that, but they do show on ad on advertising posts, they show you right. the back end analytics. And so I started like looking into it and it was really, you know, it was actually that sources and people, it was like, people actually aren't reading your Facebook posts. Like most of the time, like most of the time you're just kind of shouting into the, into it's the ether. And that's like, yeah, most of social media is like that. Yeah. And, and that was at the time. And, and that actually pissed off a lot of people at Facebook because you know, I, I don't. I don't really know why. <laughs> if, they, if they got mad at that, they yeah, had no they, idea. There wasn't a lot of negative coverage, but yeah. I was. Um, but I was curious on that, like that effect. Like, what is it? What What will people think if they realize they're kind of screaming into the void? So, like, Facebook inv- invited me out, and I started talking with like some of the engineers at like Newsfeed and stuff at the time. Again, 2013, and just the way that they were like describing sort of like the power that they had to turn a knob here to do this. And again, it didn't feel nefarious or anything, but I was like, this is such an effect on this. Um, and so I started really interrogating that, that line, like what are these platforms doing to us? How are they changing the way that we talk to each other? Is it shorter? Is it more terse? Is it smarter? Is it dumber? Is it, you know, angrier? Is it whatever? And then I think it was, it just, it started to become very clear. Um, the way I got into all of it was really harassment, you know, uh, I was for a time editing at BuzzFeed, the tech section for about a year. And one of my direct reports was Joe Bernstein and Joe was covering the video game industry, sort of in that same cultural lens. And then Gamergate happened and I didn't know anything about a lot of these worlds. And he kind of dove into it to do the coverage. And, you know, I got really interested in, in like, you know, places like 4chan and what, the, you know, sort of these like fever swamp areas, some of these, you know, really awful Reddit communities dedicated towards, you know, essentially misogynist harassment. And it's just sort of like opened a door of the, un, you know, the underside of these platforms. So I started investigating that and then it just kind of, it went from there. It was like a very, interestingly enough, straight line from Gamergate to, you know, these toxic message board communities to the rise of the pro Trump, like media apparatus and Trump trolling and stuff to, you know, to QAnon to, um, just sort of like, you know, stop the steal to all this, all this stuff that's happening. And this, you know, this real focus that people have now on the platforms and, you know, the way that they're, uh, destabilizing, you know, democracy potentially. And, yeah, so it got darker, but I think it grew out of it grew out of actually the exact work that I was trying to do, which is like how how do these platforms sh- you know shape us in any in any way? Did you feel like you were yelling out into the void for a while, and then eventually people started paying attention? Or I think there's what always do you think, was it? Yeah, sorry, well, no, yeah, I, answer I, that one. I think there's always been people who are really interested in this, and there's obviously like you know I, I actually feel like there's you know a lot of scholars out there, uh, who just don't get their, their due, um, who've been interested in this for, for, for so long and, and been doing sort of the, the front lines work, especially on her, you know, like the field of writing about online harassment. Like there's, um, you know, so many black female scholars out there who have pioneered a lot of that work, you know, monitoring their own communities, uh, and, you know, kind of get steamrolled by, you know, journalists jumping in and, uh, and taking that over. Um, 
But, I mean, you definitely can tell that there's, uh, post-2016, it was, the, there was kind of a rush, right, to, like, explain how all this stuff happened. And I think, I think some of that is great. Um, you know, some, some of that is, like, it's, it's put a lot of pressure on a lot of these companies. They're, you know, holding their feet to the fire. And I think that that's helpful. That's, you know, what the, the industry is supposed to do. Um, the journalism heard, industry. Um, we've heard a lot of chattering. And speaking of this, uh, we've heard a lot of chattering inside these companies. I'm yeah. sure when you speak, you know, on background of some of these folks, where they say, you know, everyone is holding us responsible for all the ills of the world. We're not the boogeyman. In fact, the Wall Street Journal, uh, when they mm-hmm. ran their set of stories a couple weeks ago, uh, there was a statement from Facebook that said people were divisive before Facebook and yeah. there will be after, or something like that. Yeah. I guess they didn't acknowledge there will be an after, but there will be an after. Um, what do you think about that argument? It does seem like it is people, we're a story-based species. It seems like a very convenient story to say everything wrong with us is the platforms. We very rarely talk about the underlying conditions yeah. in society uh, that make us the way we are. Yeah. So you must be thinking about this. What's your thought? Yeah. Uh, I, I, re- I wrote about this recently and I think that kind of statement from Facebook, you know, people were divisive before that, is both true and like just a, a huge dodge at the same time. You know, I think it's it's disingenuous in the way that it is that it is it you know that they try they're trying to slip out of responsibility in some sense. Like I, I think it's true that there needs to be sort of proportional criticisms, right, of of these types of things, and the, and um, and, you know, I think, like, I think the Cambridge Analytica story was actually a really interesting example of this. So, like, Cambridge Analytica, when it, when that story broke, you know, all the reporting was factual. Um, but there was this sort of feeling that came out of it and, and a little bit of, like, sensationalizing in the way that it got aggregated, et cetera, of, you know, scary Russian data science disinvolvement, you know, sort of like hinting at like the Kremlin, you know, peeking over the edge or like this idea. All the aggregations seem to get it more and more wrong. Yeah. And and there's this, yeah, it's like a game of telephone. And then there's (laughs) this, this idea of, um, you know, that the psychographic profiling is mind control, right? Like that it just like that Steve Bannon and this, you know, shady, you know, English defense contractor guy got a bunch of Facebook data and like, brainwashed some people in Wisconsin to, for, you know, to vote for Trump and ergo, there you go. And it's like, you know, that's, I think it gave a lot of people this idea, you know, around like what we can do with data and, you know, whether, how manipulative it can be that was a little bit false, but directionally the story's correct, right? right. Directionally, like w- there's a huge breach of privacy that this company, you know, has this unchecked influence and a lot of power and the way that it's mingling with politics is concerning. So I think like that's a great example of, you know, we have to be, you know, very careful with the, you know, the blows that we choose to strike on these companies and not, you know, over assign lest we are, you know, the journalists who cried wolf. But, but, you know, I think what I wrote in, the, in this piece about all those Wall Street Journal revelations, et cetera, from last week is what I thought was really interesting is they showed, they showed that like, you know, when people were doing too much, um, you know, passive consumption of video content, mm-hmm. Facebook researchers were saying, well, this actually makes people feel really miserable. <laughs> yeah. I read and they're like, on this. okay, so yeah. now we got to tweak the knobs, right? Yeah. And then it's they like, still felt we tweak the knobs and now you're with friends and family. Now you're arguing and it's getting into this like harassment territory yeah. and all this, you know, uh, misinformation and manipulation on a personal level and it's making people feel bad. And so my feeling is like, 
the problem with Facebook is Facebook, right? To some extent, like we got to figure out, yeah. like they got to figure that part out of it. Um, and so that I, anyway, it's a very long way of me saying, I think it was a dodge. Okay. It was definitely a dodge, but go to the core of the question though. Sure. Which is, um, in these discussions, we'd already talked about how much of the nuance gets lost. So do you think there needs to be a little bit more nuance in terms of, you know, these companies being one part of the problem in our society versus they're often portrayed as, oh, like you might have read, and I think the Wall Street Journal did a pretty good job framing its mm -hmm. stories, but you might have read that story about Instagram and teen girls and said the only reason why teen girls are depressed or killing themselves is Instagram. So Sure. And, and, and I mean, I, there's also, this, you know, you got to... I think what those stories showed on, on one end, which kind of did get lost a little bit, is the, the fact that Facebook has teams of people inside it who are working really hard, who are good people, who care about making these platforms better, right. and they're trying to understand it. Like, they know there's problems. In fact, that's where the leaks came from. Yeah, and the bottlenecks happen to be, you know, at the top um, with a bunch of people who don't want to change or, you know... Uh, and, and the product organization, I would yeah. say. Yeah, yeah. And... and uh so where was I going with this? I totally lost my, my train of thought. The question was, do we need to be a little bit more nuanced when oh, yeah. we talk about the ills yeah, yeah. of the world and where Facebook, in particular, maybe Twitter too, fits yeah. in that picture? And YouTube. Uh, yeah. I, so yeah, I actually think about it, and I'm trying to develop like a mental model around this to some degree uh, to write better about it. But I think that like looking at you know our information crisis, let's call it our information problem, platform problem from a, like a supply and demand perspective is actually pretty useful, right? And the platforms are the distributors, the amplifiers, they, you know, there's a lot of supply. What is the demand side of that, right? Like there, you know, awful content gets created for people because oftentimes there is some sort of demand. And I'm not saying that like, you know, people necessarily want all of these things that they're not being manipulated a little bit, but you know, a thing that I've been thinking a lot about is that the internet is reflecting, the internet feels miserable in a lot of places, right? And if you go to the heart of a lot of these conversations that are happening in, you know, these really divisive Facebook groups or whatever, or the, you know, all the kinds of harassment and bullying on Twitter and things like that, the, you know, the, 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 um, the sort of toxic neo-Nazi adjacent debates happening on YouTube, things like that. Like there's a lot of, you get a sense of a lot of misery, right? And a lot of misery finding company. And so something I've been thinking a lot about is like, I think that there's real reasons. Life expectancy has declined, you know, for, for numerous years in, in, in America. There's a lot of, I mean, just rampant inequality. Um, and I think, I think we're seeing some of that misery manifested, right? In, in the way that we're talking to each other. And I think these platforms amplify it, et cetera. But I think there's also, to some degree, you know, maybe a demand for that. And I think that some of these fixes have to go well beyond, you know, like I, I don't think winding Instagram out of Facebook and, you know, taking WhatsApp and making it its own company is going to change any of that. And, right. and so it's like when we think about this, and I, and I also don't know that we can like content moderate our way out of this problem. I, I think we definitely can. Yeah. And that's, it's lost in the conversation about content moderation. It's like this is only solving the manifestation of the problem. doesn't address the core problem yeah. itself. And so, and I don't think we know exactly what the core problem is, but I know, I, I, I really feel this deep in my bones that there is just, there's a lot of this misery and inequality. And, and I think that, I think that, you know, people want to share that these platforms allow that 
to be inflicted on others. And, you know, there's, there's, some, there's some bigger societal issues there. And I'm not trying to absolve. I think we get, you know, if you talk about this, like, on Twitter, like, you know, people... You can't tweet about People this. will try to say, yeah. Yeah, that, 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 you know, like, oh, you're, you know, you're trying to... Let I'm, not trying to I'm not trying to, yeah. you know, um, um, excuse, like, the horrible things that go on or anything. But I do think, like, we have these deeper root societal problems mm. and the platforms are making them worse. But we also have to figure out what those are and the ways to potentially address them. And that's where I get kind of really depressed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I feel like that's how I usually end a lot of the stuff that you write. <laughs> there but, you go. Um, no, it's, it's spot on and the stuff in the newsletter is great. Uh, all right, why don't we take a quick break and return to talk about what happened after this you know, long run that you had writing about the social media platforms, which is that you wanted to write about the workplace or what it used to be. Yeah. So, which is a totally normal straight line between the two of them. Uh, let's take a quick break and we'll be back uh, right after this on the Big Technology Podcast with Charlie Warzel. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the LinkedIn Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back on the Big Technology Podcast with Charlie Warzel. Second half of our show, we're live at Unfinished Live. Great conference here in the heart of New York City. Charlie, you're in from Montana? You bet. How's life in Montana? Can you um, tell everybody the story about the bears in the trees? That I feel like this is the best way to start off the second half. Sure. Um, the Montana in the fall, uh, where I live, I live in sort of a area on the edge of Missoula uh, that is nice and wooded. It's also the like black bear migratory path <laughs> uh, to, you know, uh, go and, and hibernate in the woods. So every fall, there are lots of bears. Uh, we have an apple tree in our backyard. Uh, and one morning I woke up and I went outside or actually, no, I just looked out the window as I was like making coffee and there were two black bears just in a tree, like <laughs> 10 feet from my house. And I was, this is the first year that I had yeah. moved there. I moved there in 2017 and I was like, ah, so that's a welcome to the neighborhood. Your neighbor was like, oh, you'll see them. Just look up. And yep. then you looked up and there they were. There they were. So you, in some ways, or actually not in some ways, in all the ways, got a really early start in yeah. the work from home yeah. lifestyle. 
uh, is that why you wanted, so you and your partner have this book coming out about it shortly. Is that why you wanted to write about it? Because you had this head start or yeah. what makes someone so passionate about the way that social media ecosystems work, decide they want to write uh, like a workplace book. Yeah. Um, I, I, like honestly is opportunity and the, and the moment. I mean, uh, so yeah, we, we moved in, in 2017 and started working from home and the, you know, the sort of the, sh- the short story is for the first eight months of it, my life was just terrible. Like I was so worried about working remotely and not blowing this opportunity that I collapsed my entire life into just, just working. You know, it was at, to the point where I was on the couch all day, you know, doing emails, writing stories, whatever, talking to sources that at night I'd be on that same couch watching Netflix mm-hmm. and I'd be, I'd have like Sounds a cold, familiar. I'd have a cold sweat going because really? truly, cause I felt like in, I was like, I was laboring or, or I was like watching TV in my office, you know, it was like, it's, it, it was this real collapse. And that's when I sort of realized something was wrong. Uh, Annie, my partner was struggling a little less, but also, you know, we were working way too much. It was why did you move to difficult. Montana? Uh, she's from that area, uh, and we were looking kind of for an adventure. She was doing a lot of reporting out there, um, and we thought, like, there's no way BuzzFeed will let us move. Um, we were working both at BuzzFeed at the time, and they did, to our surprise. Uh, and, and yeah, and so, you know, we had this period where it was, essentially what we were doing was, like, our own kind of, like, COVID lockdown r- remote, you know, right. work situation. Like, we were just stuck in the house. We, we don't have kids, but... Uh, and then we realized that we weren't actually working from home. You know, we were just like laboring in confinement essentially. And so we actually started trying to figure out like, what does it look like if we try to, you know, get the perks of this, if we try to actually make our, our work flexible or, and, you know, fit it around our lives instead of our lives around work. And we developed a system that really, really worked for us that really allowed us to, you know, like be more active participants in our, in the community and, you know, volunteering and stuff like that, developing a lot more hobbies, friendships outside of, you know, the, the realm of like media and, and tech and all that stuff that, and, and it was just this three more three dimensional life. Anyway, cut to the pandemic. Uh, I noticed not, I mean, everyone obviously is working from home, but also everyone was doing what we were doing, which is this kind of, you know, like collapse. Couch, yeah. And, couch, and, and, and it's like this, you know, this collapse and, there were sort of two things that happened. One, we were like, well, you know, we, we have this experience. I think we have something to say uh, that might help other people feel seen or, or, or what have you. But the other was like, it just felt like there was, you know, I, I just like new, interesting ideas, right? Whether it's the tech stuff, whether it's whatever. I, I, I'm interested in the way that different forces shape our lives. And I felt like the most interesting idea at the time really was that there's this moment of promise, right? Where... I mean, what a crazy control experiment it is to have, you know, everyone in, in the knowledge workspace pretty much, like, stop working in offices at the same time. Like, it's just a wild thing. And there's so much data we can, you know, gather from that and, and we can see, you know, we've been told for so long that, you know, that w- without offices, without these centralized spaces, that, you know, work is going to, like, our ability to work, our productivity, it's all going to collapse. You know, we're not going to be able to do that. And it proved this wrong, but it's like, so what do we do with that information, right? Do we snap back or do we see there is some promise here? There's, you know, there's maybe another way forward, especially with this idea that 
we're all very burned out, you know, like, like our jobs are incredibly stressful. It, it feels, if you talk to a lot of knowledge workers and, and obviously people, essential workers and in the service economy have this even, I mean, order of magnitude, you know, harder, but there's this, there's this notion of like, it's, a lot of modern work doesn't really seem tenable right now. You know, you have to subsume your life for it. And we, we really wanted to, you know, pick around that, that idea and see if we could kind of, you know, not develop a how-to book or anything, but like I think we, you know, the term we use is like it's like a it's like a map, right? You get to choose your direction, but like we're going to try to lay out everything, and so that's why we did it. So it's interesting that you decided to write a work from home book because it was sort of predicted that we'd all be back to the office now. Yeah. So um, how did you think about the longevity of your book? Mm -hmm. Did you anticipate there would be another pandemic or were you rooting for a variant or something? Like how did you end up uh, predicting? Definitely not rooting for a variant. How this would go. Um, You know, I, I, as someone who publishes pretty frequently and rapidly, you know, who writes for the internet, like book, the this worried me a little. I was really worried when, you know, we, we turned it around as quick as we possibly could. We wrote it, pitched it, uh, everything in about three and a half months, four, four months, maybe. Um, and, and then that was, we, we basically turned it in, uh, March 1st of this year, the first draft. And they were like, okay, it's going to come out in December. And I was like, Ooh, everyone's going to be so tired of this conversation and like maybe back in their jobs or, or, you know, have figured out some of these things and this is going to seem like, you know, stale. Um, and then life has, you know, has sort of, you know, made a, made that, uh, made the book a little more relevant in a way that's, you know, obviously unfortunate. But the thing, the, the thing is I, I don't worry about it with longevity because the book at the end of the day, isn't really just about, I know this sounds kind of like corny, but it's it's not really just about you know where we work. It's, it's about like it's about how we do it and what the expectations need to be. And it's basically, I mean, I don't think work, whether or not we more people are in hybrid or whatever, uh, or going back to the office or all at, at home, like, I think it's going to continue to be broken because of a lot of you know a lot of our our cultural attitudes towards it. A lot of the way that we um, you know like a lot of the ways that managers, especially older managers and executives are set in their ways and, you know, want people to reproduce the sort of coming up through the ranks. Uh, um, and so I, I'm not too worried about it being out of date or obsolete anytime soon, because the real idea is like, what, what does your life look like if it doesn't revolve around work, if it's not the primary axis of your life and it is a meaningful part of it? Yeah. So do you have like, well, first of all, can the stuff that you write in your book, can someone who's down the line, like someone who's being ma- overmanaged, take advantage of it and learn to do anything different? And is it, is, yeah, I guess like, is the problem, I think you sort of hinted at this in your answer, but is the problem that we need to learn to work from home or is the problem that we need to just learn to work healthier? Yeah, I think that, I think it's the second. I mean, and, and I think that that, that is, it's really hard work, like, a lot of people think that we've that Annie and I, because we wrote this book, have like figured that kind of thing out. And the way that I, I I liken you know our attitudes towards work and productivity and all that, it's I, to me it's it's similar to you know the process of um, 
like I go to, I go to therapy and I work out and those things feel very, very similar to this in the sense that there are days when it's an extreme struggle. There are days when there's not a lot of progress when you feel like you've gone, you know, you've backslid or something. Um, and the only thing that really helps is continued dedication to it and trying to, trying to figure it out. Um, and, and then I think that you know, that's part of like the, the, that routine, that pattern is, is what, what, you know, creates healthy habits. Um, and I think applying that to our jobs, but I mean, there's, there's so much that I feel, um, you know, has been kind of drilled into us, especially like modern American workers, you know, the, the idea that more work is always better, more time spent is always better. I mean, it's, it's been extremely hard for me to like un, unwind that from my life. I mean, I, I, so I, I've tried experiments, right? I've been trying to work four days a week Been trying to, you know, take time in my day to just like stop like for two hours and just do something else, anything else that's not work related. And you start to learn these lessons that like, Oh wow. When my mind isn't totally shot and fried from banging my head against the wall on this thing, you know, I, I actually feel like I have a little more space. Um, you know, I think like the mind is, you know, a, there's this, um, this writer, um, Jenny O'Dell, who wrote this book, how to do nothing. Uh, and she had a, a line during, um, a podcast that I listened to, uh, where she was talking about this, you know, during the pandemic, she's not really been doing a lot of work. Like she's, you know, she's not like, she's also an artist and she hasn't, she hasn't been very inspired to do anything. And it's this like fallow period. Right. And so, you know, society and everything is telling us this is bad. Like this, you know, this, you're not being productive. You're wasting time. You're doing whatever. And she said that basically at the end of every one of those periods, she goes into, you know, a, like a, a, a peak of just like productivity, inspiration, creativity, and the whole time she's been working, you know, your brain doesn't really know it. And I think that that happens on a sort of a micro level with us. You know, there's a lot of times that especially in knowledge work, interesting ideas click because we've given ourselves the space to let them sort of marinate when we're not constantly putting that pressure on ourselves. And I think it's, it's like that with the work week, right? Like, you know, this idea of working 90 hour weeks, like it's, it's the classic way to burn out. It's a short term solution. And the long term solution is actually, you know, like how do we, how do we air it out a little bit and, and, you know, treat ourselves, you know, with a little more respect. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that's feasible in the American workplace? I mean, it is interesting because we do find ourselves uh, in between two different types of workplaces, right? There's China with 886, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., six mm -hmm. days a week. And then there's Europe, which takes a month off in the summer mm -hmm. or longer. So America does seem like it might be a nice compromise in between the two. But obviously, our workplace is still extremely unhealthy. Yeah. So it's also interesting because we are now in like more direct competition with China. So where do you think we net out and how can we do it and stay competitive? I don't think that it has anything to do or like it will have any massive, you know, impact. Again, some of these things are, you know, there are equity issues, right? With like, you know, supply chains are made of humans, right? And a lot of those humans have, you know, like hourly labor jobs with not that great protection. And like, you know, like look at Amazon, right? It's like, you know, when you, when you look at, at, the, you know, the workers' rights and, and, and all the issues that have gone there with, like, you know, Alabama and the labor, the labor um, uh, strike and all, all, all that stuff. Like, 
those those issues are are probably when you're talking about competition more pertinent, right? Like how do how do we treat people sort of lower on on that supply chain line who are sort of more on the front line of it? Um, but in terms of like the knowledge work side of that, like I I don't think. I don't think it's even, it's really a question. The way we frame it again in the book is this like long versus short term. I mean, if you, to bring Amazon up again, like listen to Jeff Bezos talk about the arc of his career and, and building Amazon. And it's like, it, it, it's obviously there's this whole relentlessness to it. But there's also this long term view mm-hmm. of what the company is supposed to be. And not to conform it into these like these short term, you know, quarterly market gains or whatever. And like, build you know build out that base and and I think you can sort of flip that and reverse it to the the way that we work we are burning ourselves out people are miserable there's so much turnover in the workforce there is a great resignation thing going on you know quote unquote yeah. where you, you, like, that's people, real and unemployment benefits are are going away and people are still saying no it's like screw it I'm not gonna work like that is a signal mm. that something is up and I think that like I, I think that companies and and individuals who understand that like we're not you know automatons we're not robots who exist to work that is that's going to be that is a long-term solution we end the book with a letter to employees or workers and a letter to executives and both of you know what we try to do in both of those is is show and again this is sounds super corny but like show that there's, you know, like to borrow the business term, like synergies between those things. What is good for employees ends up being good for employers. If you look at the long run, if you look at the short run, no, you want to burn people out into the ground, you know, get what you need from them, scale fast and, you know, get your VC money and get out. And, you know, I don't, I don't know how long that works for. Yeah. And it is interesting that Bezos does have that long-term view. Uh, but he burns everybody out yeah. in the fulfillment centers. Yeah, but his business is structured in right. in that way that, like, you know, like Amazon, the company, <laughs> yeah. is living is li- had a had a, a lot of um, you know a lot of runway, and the workers obviously didn't. Yeah, I, I want to end with this. Um, you we've talked about it throughout this whole conversation, but you cover a lot of different stuff. Yeah. You've made a lot of different stops. You've done it in a lot of different venues. What's the goal of your work, Charlie? Like, what are you trying to accomplish? Oh, wow. Yikes. Just interesting shit. I mean, seriously, like that's, it's such a, it's such a privilege, like to be able to do this kind of stuff. I mean, I, I really, I'm, I'm, I have an obsessive personality, but one that's like, uh, hinges on like, you know, I guess short-term obsessions, right? Mm-hmm. And then I want to bring people in in on it. I want to I want to meet meet those people who are involved in my in that obsession. Um, you know, right now it's kind of around work. I worry a little that it's like a, that I'm a little too much of a generalist sometimes. It's, it's not, you know. I don't know, Charlie. I think it's working. It's I don't I don't know, it, but but the but it's just it's just like honestly, like we were just talking about like about, you know, the idea of like reading and stuff. Like it is so cool to be able to learn for a living, or to be able to dial up the you know the people who are involved in 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 whatever it is, and and have them teach you. And then it's such a privilege to be able to like you know disseminate that and 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 try to you know bring people along on on your journey. So that's really like I don't think about it in 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 the long term scale of that. It's like as long as I can keep doing interesting stuff, um, and hopefully like hopefully there's an element of it that helps people understand 
you know, like our, our world a little better. I don't know. It's again, sounds corny, but it's just actually how I feel. Yeah. Well, I'm uh, a very religious reader of the newsletter. I look forward to devouring the book. Um, everybody out there, you can get the newsletter, Galaxy Brain on Substack. Yep. And tell everyone where to get the book. The book, uh, I mean, shop at your local uh, independent bookstore is what we'd like, uh, since we were just talking about the right. Amazon supply chain. And the title? Uh, it's called Out of Office, The uh, Big Problem and Bigger Promise of Working from Home. It is out uh, December 7th, but, you know, those pre-orders, get those pre-orders in. They, uh, they, they help. They help a lot. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. Well, thanks, everybody, for sticking thank around. Thank you guys so much. And, Appreciate it. I uh, want to say a quick thank you to my editor, Nate Gowatney, Red Circle, for hosting and telling the ads. Thank you to Charlie for spending this time with me. And most importantly, to everybody who's listened. Thank you very much. Thank and you. we'll see you next week on the Big Technology Podcast. Thank you.